Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold. Conscious construction starts right now. Everybody, I'm here with Matt Baudreau. Matt, welcome to The Modern Good. We are so excited to have you on. Thank you. Honor is absolutely mine. So Matt came to us via my husband doing a lot of Instagramming in the parenting, building up strong men space, right? We've got two sons and two daughters and he was looking around Instagram and he came to me one day and he was so excited. I saw this huge smile on his face and he was like, babe, we've got to get this guy on our show. Awesome. What he does completely complements everything you do in your work. We sat down on the bed, ripped open the laptop and we were up for hours just kind of diving into everything that you do. So I've been already raving about you to a variety of people in my community and it's just such an honor to have you here. I can't wait to hear all of your thoughts on what's going on in the world, how to raise, you know, really upstanding, epic young citizens. And really, I- I'm ending us with some rapid fire questions that I hope will uh, catch you off guard and also give us some really good information to chew on moving forward. That's so, awesome. Well, thank you for that background too, by the way. That's very humbling and honoring to hear. So thank you. Yeah, my husband's got good taste. I always trust my husband's taste. If he says that something's worth spending the time on, I always go for it. So I'll tell you all a little bit about Matt. Matt is a keynote speaker, consultant, coach to organizations around the world. Matt's clients have ranged from Wells Fargo, Honeywell, Lockheed Martin to American Eagle, Cedars-Sinai, and the U.S. Air Force. Wow, that's big. Matt has a reputation for provocative thought leader in educational and personal development practices. He is a two-time featured TEDx speaker, and he was named Corporate Trainer of the Year at Stanford University. He's spoken to over 250,000 people across the world. Well, it's not too many days that I meet somebody whose bio far, far, far exceeds my own. So good just, job. Just different. Might exceed in the number of times I've run my mouth, but but uh, just different. Everybody's bringing their own gifts to the table, you know? Yeah, amen to that. So parenting is something that comes up a lot in my work. We really try to look at everything through the lens of input-output in my work, and When I was looking at everything you talk about on Instagram, on Twitter, it all started to just perfectly align where you're looking at it from a different lens or different perspective, but it really backs up everything that I talk about. So I'm really curious, what is the turning point for you in your life that made you potentially, you know, change direction or start to see either parenting or education from a different perspective? Mm, That's a really good question. So it's, you know, Naval Ravikant talks about what he calls specific knowledge, mm-hmm. right? The specific knowledge is usually the culmination of a number of different experiences that, that inform a perspective. And, and I can very clearly pinpoint, you know, a few different areas in my own journey where I see now where my perspective has come from. I'm sure I still have blind spots. I, I realize every day how much I don't know. Um, but I see where a lot of that perspective was built. And I always tell people it actually started right around four or five years old, oddly mm, enough, that. because that's where I saw that there was a game going on in the walls of classrooms. I very clearly remember sitting in this classroom and, and uh, I was right about five years of age. I started school at four, but I was right about five years of age. And the teachers broke us up into various color groups 
right? There's red group here, blue group here, yellow group here. And I remember looking around as I saw us being broken up and they were very, very intentional, you know, about what was going on. And I remember looking and going, okay, well, that group over there, they think is going to have the most trouble with this. That group over there, they, they feel a little more confident about, and this is the group they feel like are the, the group of best readers in, in the classroom. And so they're, they're doing this on purpose. I figured that out very early on. And so from then on out, I looked for the patterns of, well, what is the game that's being played here at school? And so I always tell people, I got, I mean, I got straight A's all through school. I got straight A's all through college. And it's not because I'm wildly intelligent, but it was very easy for me to see the patterns of, well, what do the teachers want to hear and see in order for me to get that arbitrary A? Right. So I noticed that early on. So that always kind of lived in the back of my mind. Uh, fast forward a little bit into early adulthood and I'm working at Stanford University. I'm meeting these wildly intelligent young people, but they're intelligent in an academic sense. And I'm listening to them and I'm consulting with them and I'm helping them and I'm going, man, functionally, there's some big issues here. So, again, you're good at playing this game, but it's not translating over into real world kind of stuff. And then I'm also seeing the ins and outs of the game being played at the school level. I'm going, wait a second, admissions isn't the meritocracy everybody you know, thinks that it is, right? And so I'm starting to put all these patterns together. Well, I end up being a public school teacher, a public school administrator, seeing the game being played of school, seeing the issues our young people were having. I leave all that to launch my own schools and, and launch a different game while I'm consulting with companies that are bringing me in going, hey, we've got all of these straight A students from Harvard and Stanford and MIT. They all suck. We want to fire them because they're really good at school, but they're not good at life. All right. So for me, all of these things were connecting dots. Well, we're clearly creating a population. And again, this is a broad stroke, you know, kind of statement, but we're creating a population that's not doing what we're saying we want to do with school. What we're saying we want to do as far as building up strong young people. And, you know, about that time, my wife and I were having, you know, our first our, our first child and, and I'm working in these schools going, man, I can't if this is a piece of it. And I don't think school is to blame. I think there's parenting trends, there's cultural trends, there's all these things. But gosh, man, if if school is a huge part of this, then I need to do something different. I got to figure something else out because my kids are not going to be. You know, they're not going to follow the crowd into this kind of oblivion that, that I'm seeing be wildly ineffective. And so it was all of those things that kind of led us down the path we are now. So long tail answer, but hopefully that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And listen, I'm all for long winded. Long winded is what helps me do a better job on my end. So I love it. And I think for a lot of people, they can attest to once you have a child, the game kind of changes, right? It's no longer just, well, like, what do I see for all these other kids that are not actually coming from my bloodline? And then once it's actually yours, you start to see things in a heightened perspective where it intensifies, right? You, you can see what that input would look like as an output as a 30-year-old, and you're like, that's not the kid I want. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to take care of the grandkids raised by that kid, right? You start to think generationally down the road. And yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for a lot of people, having kids is, in fact, that turning point. And I love that you are coming from both the inside and then shifting to the outside, changing perspective. Because I do believe most systems need to be broken with some sort of knowledge of how the inner workings are affecting how it's actually being brought to life. So no better person to do that than you. That's what exactly. Is the... And sorry, not to interrupt, but just it's not even the uh, the breaking of the system, but 
when people have that sort of insight, I feel like it is their duty to create a better system, right? Something else different because Absolutely. sometimes you can't always break. I remember speaking to a group of, of educators and there's about 3000 that I was getting the opportunity to do a keynote with. And then I had this small group of educators from around the U S and um, one was the educator, the uh, administrator of the year. And she's like, oh, gosh, I'm inside. She's like, but I just can't, I can't seem to break this. Like, how do we break this? How are we going to, how are we going to shake this all up? And I said, well, how would you go inside and break up the Vatican? Like you're not going to, so mm-hmm. you got to create something different Alternative. and allow for those changes to happen. And then those stories are what's going to, you know, bring people over. And it's, we're looking at that same sort of thing. So not to interrupt, but that's, that's the way. No, I no, no, that's not interrupting at all. So I do actually, I've made a connection with somebody that is a PhD in, in education. And she's created what I can only describe as kind of a, the antithesis of CRT. And mm-hmm. she's actually been working with legislators all over the country to essentially adopt this sort of education plan and style of teaching. So I do think that there are people out there that while it might seem futile to, you know, for a lot of people, it seems futile to try to stand up against big pharma. It might seem futile to try to stand up against the U.S. education system. Um, I do think that this particular woman, Dr. Ivy, is certainly doing it. And I love that some people are at least trying to go about it from a legislative perspective because, like it, I always think that, you know, if we look at the system as a gigantic brick wall, we all have to figure out which brick we want to push on and kind of figure out where that point of weakness is so that we all in a coordinated effort kind of push on our brick to knock the whole wall over. But if somebody's just sitting there with one hand trying to knock down the whole wall, it'll never come down. So I think we do have to have a, a multifaceted approach to either disrupting and rebuilding or just breaking it down and starting an alternative. I think that's great. No, and I'm, I'm fully in support of that. Where I end up speaking out is what I see more often being something that um, I think, and to not necessarily any fault of their own, but I think a lot of parents get stuck in hypocrisy where they will speak out. They will join said professor in, mm-hmm. in this you know, push to uh, you know, come out from a legislative fashion and to break down these walls and to break down these traditions and to, and to really break down the system. And they'll speak out against you know, what's happening while putting their kids in it anyways. And that for me is where I challenge parents. Like if you're going to speak out against something, but you're going to, Hey, this person is my enemy. Take care of my child eight hours a day, five days a week. And I'm not going to do, I'm going to use my voice, but I'm still sending my kid into it, man. I just, um, I, I, I can't, I can't do that. Uh, and I encourage parents to to be careful of that hypocrisy if they can. Well, you just anticipated my next question. So I'm glad that I thought through this interview correctly. Awesome. So <laughs> a lot of our audience, I do know that, you know, well, I'm not saying that a lot of our audience is going to be like out there with a sign, you know, sure. chanting that things need to change. I think right. that in general, our audience tends to let's say apply some of those change techniques or change the inputs at home to try to potentially counterbalance what may or may not be happening at school. But I do know that a lot of our parents, you know, I I tend to attract a lot of people in the, you know, kind of career entrepreneurial space. Sometimes it's hard, you know, like, what do I do with my child if I don't have, I physically don't have the hours in the day to be at home homeschooling. So I do know that we do have a lot of people here that, their kids might be going to a private school, Christian school, public school, what have you. 
I'm wondering what strategy you, you know, uh, aside from saying like, hey man, look in the mirror, you're being an absolute hypocrite. So let's put that one to the side because I do think there's probably some of that there. If they've moved past that place and they're like, I, I can't, I don't know logistically how to bring this to life. What yeah. are some strategies that you think parents can couple with to essentially counterbalance or counteract what they may be taught at school? That's a really good question. And, and you know, I always want to, um, you know, get, kind of get the caveats up front. Like, look, I, I, I am all for sovereignty. I'm all for freedom. Uh, and that means I'm all for you freely doing something that I would not do, right? I truly am. And so I want parents to know if you are parenting intentionally and you want the best for your young heroes, man, I am on your side. We, we may come to a point where we disagree on what that looks like, and that's fine. That's great. Right? I'm very much on your side, and I'm very much on the side of the good teachers and administrators that are in the school system. I'm very against the system itself. You know, so I always want to make sure people, people know that I differentiate that, and I hope that that comes across in how I um, express myself too, right? Because I, I just I want people to hear that. Um, it is hard. Parenting is hard in general. It can be. And, and so when you're trying to, I like the way you framed it, that you're trying to counteract what is going on in school. I always ask people to define a couple of things first. What is it in school that you are trying to counteract? And what should education be for? I think you have to start with those two questions, right? And that, you know, for me, I look at education and I think, well, education should be for sovereignty. It should be for freedom. It should be for, you know, the ability for me to learn who I am and to act in accordance with that, right? To understand, to, to gain self-awareness, to gain self-confidence. Like those are the things that I want. And I want the ability to get to a point where I am not having to rely on anybody or anything I don't want to. That's how we define it in our house. You've just taken most schools now off the docket. And As you said that, I'm like, oh man, okay, well. That's correct. That's yeah. exactly right, which is see why. And so that's why I differentiate between education and schooling. Because schooling, in my mind, and based on my experience, again, of being higher ed, public school, private schools, that conveyor belt model is the antithesis of what I just described. Mm -hmm. It's about blind obedience and it's, it's those kind of things. So defining what education should be for, and then again, defining what is it that you want to counteract. Most parents, and rightfully so nowadays, they'll say they want to counteract things like CRT. They want mm -hmm. to counteract all of this early sexualization. They want to counteract Right. Some of the some of the um, agendas that they're seeing play out. And that's not I would agree with that. I'm, I'm on board with counteracting that. But again, go back to how I defined education. I want to counteract the habits that are built over the course of eight hours a day, five days a week for 13 years of learning that life works in subjects of putting academia on a pedestal as if being good at regurgitation translates into an effective and a purpose-driven life. I want to counteract the one right answer where civil discourse is not allowed. I want to counteract blind obedience and being 18 and raising my hand to ask another human things like, can I go to the bathroom and having them have the ability to say no. See, I've seen the long-term implications of that mindset. And that, for me, is the sneaky thing that we need to counteract. Right? So parents need to define it first and then start looking at, okay, what is the solution then when I get home? 
how do I talk to my young heroes about the game that is being played here and having those explicit, really, a lot of times it comes down to just having those conversations, right? Well, this is the game that's being played. Here's what I want. Here's your game plan then as you go to school. Do you, uh, are you familiar with Seth Godin? Yes. And also Seth um, has, has, is a phenomenal human being and I've had the chance to interact with him uh, quite a bit. And I know he had, you know, he's very pro education. He's not a fan of school. He's very pro, you know, the schools that we built and, and uh, he's phenomenal. His kids went to conveyor belt schooling. But he was very intentional about getting their his words education when they got home. So we're mm -hmm. talking about what you're doing in school and saying, okay, so what is the point here? Well, uh, are they trying to get you to regurgitate certain information? Well, how can we look at that differently? How can we give you an agenda when you go to school of how do I play the game like an employee, but think like an entrepreneur and provide value to the teacher and provide, he just shifted the way that they took their mindset into the day so that they at least got benefit there. And then when they got home, they focused on now, who am I? What do I want to do? What's my trajectory in the world? And how do I get that information? How do I create that network? How do I make those connections? They were intentional about doing that when they got home as well as you know, shining a light on the game they were playing during the day. It's not easy and it takes consistent work. And that's where most parents give up is it's the consistency that's needed. Well, yeah, I mean, I would argue in everything that I have done over the years, if there's one thing that's important to focus on in parenting, it's consistency. But yes, uh, frankly, even in my clients who I'm working with in their 50s and 60s, yeah. consistent physical abuse frankly, still yields, yields a better result than inconsistency overall. So if the parent's like kind of nice, their behavior's erratic, you're getting in trouble, you don't really know when you're going to get in trouble, that produces a far worse result than quite literally being physically abused in, yep. in a very rational, consistent order your entire childhood. You know what you're going to get. And there's an element yep. of anxiety reduction all right, that, that happens because you know what, and that's a, that's a crazy thing to to think about that, but I love that because I think it's a great example of how powerful consistency actually is. So true. And offline, I'll send you um, kind of my hypothesis on some of the stuff because I really, I like to take a look at collective information and generational information and quite literally assimilate patterns and see what sort of generational inputs are yielding what generational outputs yes. and what we can effectively do as parents moving forward to change all of that. Um, I think a lot of times, as you might have seen in your work, we tend to pendulum swing, right? We go like too hard in one direction. And then, you know, I would say right now we are living in the midst of a very, very negative pendulum swing into mm -hmm. something that I would view as possibly far too progressive. It's like gone beyond trying to be progressive and being open-minded to something I would say is pretty insane. But we'll we'll put that off to the side for now. I would love to see us get to a place where instead of pendulum swinging out of being triggered or in fear, we're really thinking intentionally about what we need to do ahead of time before we're being triggered and how we actually should be parenting as a collective. That's right. And it's that intention, that word you use is intentionality, right? And mm -hmm. the reality is we're living in a world that uh, begs us, pleads us, distracts us, and points us towards reactionary everything. 
we are in a habitual state of reacting to the world around us. We react to the crazy stuff that's going on. We react to all of the crazy, you know, media bombardment. We react to what our parents say to us about how we parent our own kids and, and then try to, you know, base something on them. We react, we react, we react rather than just listening sometimes to your own intuition and being very, very intentional. If you're, you know, I've found with most parents, if they'll be intentional about self-work, making sure that they are continuing to grow, um, you know, trying to solve for happy, to use Mogadot's term, you know, for themselves, and then just parent intentionally auditing the young heroes. Who are they? What are their gifts? What are their kind of you know triggers? What are what things get them excited? How can we have these conversations together? How do we grow together? How do we and they focus on that rather than reacting to the world and then trying to parent through a reactionary lens? It actually ends up being simple. Not easy, but simple. So what break method does that is the primary work that I do is actually teaches you to rewire your patterned reactions to the world around you. So yeah. I'm completely on board with what you're saying. And I think one of the things that I've been really trying to focus on too, that's become very apparent. I've been spending a lot of time working with generations at the same time. So working with little kids, working with the parents. I'm also teaching at a therapeutic residential boarding school for teen girls. So I'm kind of watching all of the different phases of life. And I think on one hand, you've got this kind of like hippie conscious parenting. That's like parent to the individual, everything should be unique, right? And then you've got the the other side of the pendulum, which is like, there's one way to do it and I'm going to beat you with all these biblical terms and you're going to be hit with the paddle, right? Where it's like consistent and forceful and authoritarian. I would say one of the things that I love to help people learn how to do is observe their child and observe the way their brain or instinctive patterns tend to make them do things out of repetition so that you're intentionally offering them different like plot twists or different activities that allow them to learn how to oppose their natural pattern. Cause I think sometimes that instinct and intuition, especially at the child's age, mm -hmm. they can get kind of wires crossed. So they think they might be doing something that they're guided to do. But as you're watching it from a adult perspective, you're seeing actually, no, that's something that they instinctively do that yep. needs to be opposed. So I... what, what in, in your curriculum do you do? Cause I, as I've seen it, I mean, like I said, I think you and I are kind of trend, like we're doing these kind of parallel tracks. We're just looking at it from different sides. So mm -hmm. what in your curriculum do you do to kind of offer up those pattern oppositions so that they can, can grow and become sovereign rather than be stuck in a loop of repetition? Yeah, that's a really good question. And when I was speaking, you know, intuition wise, I, I was meaning that more of the parent because you're right. Um, you know, the natural intuition of the, of the child does need some, so, you know, you're talking about like, um, there's the, hey, just parent to the individual, and then there's the, no, there's the hard and fast, right? And I say, I don't think either one of those are, are fully correct. I think it ends up being a combination. There are mm -hmm. certain things, there are certain guidelines, there are certain barriers, right, that need to be in place. Um, and then there, you get the individuality uh, out of that. You know, Jordan Peterson talks about, hey, for the first few, you know, four or five years, part of what you want to do is you want to make sure this is a kind human being. You want to make sure that they understand a little bit of the social ramification for you. you don't just interrupt and you don't just jump in and you don't just go hit somebody and you don't just, part of that is because of the long tail social game there. You want them to have more opportunities as they get older and they're not going to have opportunities as they get older, if nobody 
likes them, right? And if everybody thinks they're a jerk and everybody thinks they're selfish and everybody thinks they're crybaby, like they're not going to have any opportunities. So part of, you know, what we need to do is, is put some of those barriers and boundaries in place. Um, so when you say curriculum, I always look at it from a few different things, right? I've built schools and I don't even like to use that word. So I've built schools. That's one thing. I help parents home educate and, um, and take a look at parenting trends. And, and that's kind of another thing. But we utilize something very, very similar in both. So in the schools, we use contracts. In these contracts, the young heroes are actually putting these contracts together. And it's essentially saying, look, this is my sacred space, wherever there's, we call it a studio. It's, you know, quote unquote, like a classroom-ish. This is my studio. When I'm here, it's kind of like a martial arts dojo. Like this is, or, or a church or however, this is a sacred spot. When we are here in this sacred spot, there are rules that are going to govern this sacred spot for us. And we're going to decide what that is. And those are usually value-driven, character-driven sort of things, right? And when you ask young heroes, what do you want, you know, what do you want everybody else to abide by? Because everybody else has to abide by that when they come in here too, you know? And it's like, well, you've got to be, you know, you've got to be nice or you've got to share. And they'll all have their different lingo, but it comes down to very, very similar things that they agree on in terms of how people should really interact and behave with each other. You know, it really does come down to that. So they govern their studios based on that and they do it wildly effectively. We've actually found as adults, we actually sometimes have to tone it back because they're almost like, they almost want to tend to, to move towards the rigidness at that point, right? Mm -hmm. Like yep. making our laws, you know, and so like, we must kill you. Like they get aggressive <laughs> sometimes and we're like, hey, hey, it's all good. Like, what can we do? So we have taken that for the parents that I help to home educate and for on the parenting side, we've taken a very similar approach and we've got a contract in our own house. We've got our essential, you know, our quote unquote rules for our house that it was, we all came up with together, but it's a contract of who we are, how we want to see the world and how we want to be seen by the world. Like we've been very intentional about that. So we have that contract that governs us, meaning we all hold each other accountable to being those people. When I say we all hold each other, I mean that. I mean, I can say, hey, you know, to my 11 year old daughter, rule number two is, you know, hey, what's going on right here? My six year old son can say to me, dad, you know, this rule says no complaining, fix it. You sound like you're complaining, I thought. What's your solution? And if he says that respectfully, I go, yeah, you know what? You're right, man. Okay, I got to find the solution to that. Otherwise, I got to stop complaining, right? And we do that. We build this, this trust and this ability to have peace and intentionality as we view the world because we can put on our glasses of how we've decided we want to live and go forward there. So that's that's where I help families kind of build that out for themselves to inform how they interact intentionally with the rest of the world. I would say what you just hit on right there is it's a direct result of what I hear from most of my clients, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, where they're raised in a culture of kids are seen, not heard. You can't question your parents, right? All that does is it, it breeds either a complete lack of trust in all adults, right? Because you inevitably will see inconsistencies or hypocrisy in their behavior, or it makes you 
like shut down and actually start to seek out some sort of hierarchy everywhere you go so that you can always be victimized by this hierarchy that's kind of suppressing who you innately are. So I think exactly what you're describing is exactly how I would think this needs to be undone because we know that generationally that's kind of, you know, been the standard, right? You know, you kid, kids just automatically respect their elders, don't ask questions. So I love that you bring that up. I wonder, there are a lot of parents listening now and I can think of this in certain settings of, of families that I've worked with. The parents will need to do a significant amount of self-work to be able to receive correction from their child, right? Like right. a lot of people I know, if your child was like, mommy, you were just complaining, they'd immediately get triggered, right? So what, what would you offer up to some of the parents that are potentially wanting to step and embrace some of this? what do they have to do to look in the mirror and actually prepare themselves to be able to receive correction from yeah. their six-year-old child? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. And you're talking about the exact things, man. It's it's the, um, you know, we kill curiosity early on when we do the things you were talking about because we're negating them wanting to, like when they go into themselves, they don't want to ask questions anymore. Good questions are infinitely better than good answers. So we're just killing it, right? And we talk about, Gosh, generationally, we grew up with, oh, well, you don't, don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics, you don't talk, cool, now we have an entire country that doesn't have the ability to civilly talk about religion, we don't have the ability to civilly talk about, you know, uh, politics, we don't, like, we can't talk about any of these things because we squashed it early, All right? So that's the, that's the long tail issue that we're talking about here. So, you know, what do the parents have to do to, you know, to look in the mirror? Well, Here's the, here's the reality of it. Uh, I, I do a lot of analogies to like health and fitness. Um, everybody knows, everybody knows how to be in shape and everybody knows how to be healthy. I, I truly believe like you don't have to know the science behind all of it, but everybody can go, well, if I just ate real food and not this garbage and they can pretty much define what usually that is, people may argue mm -hmm. over vegan or carnivore or whatever, like that's great. But if I eat real stuff versus the processed stuff and I get some exercise in, generally that's the way to get in shape. So then why is so much of our population not in shape? I've just decided it's easier and they don't want to. This to me is a similar sort of deal. If a parent truly wants to have that relationship with their kids and not just the look for ease of parenting, I am just going to bark my orders and you better listen and I'll, you know, be if they truly want to do that work, that consistent work, they just have to be willing to recognize that by default, you're probably going to parent the way you parented. You're going to parent based on whatever other external anxieties that you have. And your kids are going to have to deal with the ramifications of your decision to just live a reactionary life. Or, or parent or in a very pendulum swing kind of way, right? Where it's like your parents were very strict. You were physically punished. So now everything's a free for all. You can't discipline at all. Your kids have no bad time. I would say that in my experience, that pendulum swing where it's like, I did this, so now I'm going to do it this way, that here. yields honestly the worst results I've seen oh. in my career. Either way, you've got to be willing to go, okay, I'm not, there's no such thing as, as perfect parenting. There's no such thing as perfection. Like, that doesn't exist. 
but it doesn't mean that you let yourself off the hook for trying to get better. I always tell my, like, there's no such thing as a perfect husband. There's no such thing as a perfect dad, but my standard will always remain perfection. Mm, I I love that. I'll try. I'll try to keep moving that way because, well, I found life is a whole lot easier. If I'm trying to be perfect as a husband, my relationship's a whole lot better. If I'm trying to be perfect as a dad, my relationship with them and, and their output, right, is a whole lot better. So it just takes a parent being willing to do that. That's the self-work we're talking about, right? You don't have to go, hey, kids, I'm going to put you to the shelf while I do years of therapy to try to undo all this stuff. Mm-hmm. No, you have resources there just every single day. It's that consistency again, and that's why most people balk. It's consistency. They don't want it. Well, and I think a lot of people, and this is, I would say, very much centered to the work that I do, a lot of people don't have the ability to truly see themselves and to actually undo their assumption pathway. So if a child says something, they might genuinely believe in that moment they're doing exactly what you're telling them to do. And if we were to hit the God pause button and we're like, hold on, let's roll back. We're like, actually, you crashed and burned. They can't actually see it in the moment. So that's exactly what we teach in Break Method. And I will say that, you know, what I'm finding interesting about what I'm listening to you say right now, one of the keystones we talk about in Break Method Parenting is the importance above any. So number one is age-appropriate truth in our books. Number two is teaching a child how to accurately self-measure. So I feel Mm -hmm. like that self-measurement is kind of exactly what you're talking about here. And the reality is, and I think sometimes in that moment where we can kind of feel that we're being triggered and we're trying to step into what you're asking us to do as parents, Mm -hmm. if we can ask ourselves a simple question, is what's about to come out of my mouth or out in my actions going to yield the adult child that I'm trying to create right now? If not, I've got to give myself a beat here and and select wisely. Because that right there might just kind of anything that you were going to do, you can kind of project out the input output for a second and be like, nah, that's going to do the exact opposite of what the intention here is. So good. And I love that. And a way to try to again be even more intentional about that that we you know we talk about with the parents and and a lot of these groups so i have a friend i actually got his book right here so it's, uh, it's alter ego effect by todd herman okay uh, and so you know i've gotten to work with todd um a number of times he's come on the apogee strong program to work with our young men he wants to work with our dads He's a phenomenal individual, and he helps uh, athletes and and actors and musicians, and he's helped a lot of them um, over the years. And he's kind of this performance psychologist, so to speak, right? But it's the whole um, adage of intentionally taking on a specific persona. And so this is the way I like to frame it for parents. You know, if you've got kids, you take a look at your kid. You know, I'll look at my young man and and um, you know, he's like, all right, dad, I'm going to, I want to put my Batman costume on, right? You watch a young guy put a, put a Batman costume on. What happens? He friggin' becomes Batman. Oh yeah. Right. In their mm-hmm. mind, they are becoming Batman. Everything is looking through the lens of now I'm Batman. I'm speaking like Batman. I'm saying what Batman would say. I'm doing what Batman would do. I'm assessing the situation as Batman would assess the situation, right? They take on those characteristics. So when parents are looking for that self-work, and you're right, it's we have a hard time seeing ourselves, right? So I encourage people, not in the wrong way, but to, to, to build out who is the ideal 
in your mind? Who would that be? Or what are, or, or maybe a conglomerate of characteristics. Um, I really like the way this person says this, behaves this way. Whoever that is, whether it's a famous person, it's a real person, it's not a real person, it's somebody you know, it's somebody you're, you know, it's one of your parents. You kind of build this ideal with all of these different components and then you step into that role. You can define it, you can name that person and mm -hmm. you can go, this is who I'm going to try to be as a parent. So as I step into my parenting role to interact with my child, I want to try to operate from that frame and make that my habit. It gives you a little bit more intentionality and people say, well, that's not, you're not being your true self. And that's, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's accurate. I think you're recognizing bits and pieces of yourself with these different people and you are just forcing yourself to raise, kind of raise the bar, raise the vibration of, of that particular component and act it out until that becomes a habit of who you are, right? And so you don't have to worry as much about not being able to see myself. I wanna create the self that needs to parent. That makes all the sense in the world. And you yeah. brought up something that I love to teach about and it obviously comes up more and more in society today this idea of somehow opposing who you believe you innately are is no longer being authentic. So as adults, until we've done some sort of really intentional rewiring work or you know, self-awareness work, I would argue not just self-awareness, but something that actually moves it into action. I think self-awareness can get kind of a little bit tricky, but we'll put a pin in that. I think people think that they're being authentic when really, they were parented out of being authentic a long time ago. You were probably only authentic at maybe three, four years old. Past four years old, you've no longer been authentic. You are a very patterned, reactive version of yourself that's no longer authentic. Right. So I think people need to reframe how they're looking at it because when we actually learn how to intentionally peel off all of these reactive emotional patterns and reactive ways of assuming how we're perceiving our world, then we actually become authentic, right? It actually creates the space to actually be who you could have become before the world patterned you. That's right. And parents pattern that and school patterns that hyper um, patterns that for you. You're exactly right. So it's well, And what you're talking about, it actually stops that from happening, right? Of course, no matter what, anything that has repetition will create a pattern. That's how this works. However, what you're teaching about is the most likely scenario to actually, like you said, like it builds sovereignty. It allows that child to authentically grow up being themselves, right. which to me kind of clearly brings up, you know, something that's just, you know, the elephant in the room. What about parents that are here today whose parents are a shit show they know that they're already pretty far down the road. We're talking like 12, 13, 14. What do you do if someone's like, hey, I've got this 13-year-old with massive behavioral problems. I don't know what to do. What would you do? How do, I, how do I make change when I'm this deep in it? So you're saying the parent themselves who is asking that question? Yeah, they're, they're, they're coming to you saying like, how do I, how do I fix a, a 12, 13, 14-year-old that's already very, like they've gone to public school. They're already deep in it. They're already doing all of the behaviors that we wouldn't want them to do. What would you tell them to do in this instance of like, how do we, how do we unpattern or kind of bring them back to their authentic state when they're that deep in it? Yeah, I would ask, I would, and I get this 
I get it quite often. Um, and I've had, I had a conversation earlier today um, with a phenomenal person and I just met her today. And so I try to get as much clarity as I can because people reach out nonstop and ask those things. And I want to help as many people as I can. Um, but it almost always, and this young lady that I got to speak to today has um, two teenagers right around the ages that you said. Uh, and she was saying those, those very things, like how do I undo some of these habits? How do I undo some of these patterns? How do I... And I always start with the parent and go, well, what, how are you accentuating that? Mm -hmm. Like, how are you actually supporting that with what you're doing now? Because again, all these patterns that are being built up, it's not just being built up at school. They're being built up at home. So as we started diving in a little more, it started, well, she, she is the do as I say, not as I do parent. She is a you're in my house and these are my rules kind of parent. Right. So you're accentuating all of the things that are going on here. So I always start with the parent and go, are you leading in the way again, kind of going back to what you said, you know, are you, are you, what is, what is coming out of your mouth right now going to help the 30 year old version of this person and not just what's coming out of your mouth to them, your relationship as the parent with uh, the other parent your relationship with your own parents, your relationship with the lady at the grocery store, your relationship with money, your relationship with how you look at your job. Are you saying, "Ugh, it's Monday. I hate my life. Ugh, money doesn't grow on trees. We never have enough. Ugh. you're always the primary educator. So it always starts there first. What patterns do you need to fix for yourself? And then can you take your young people on that journey of you fixing you first because they're way more likely to allow you the type of conversations that are going to help deconstruct their patterns if they see that you first went mm, i've got patterns of my own here and i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you to help me fix those you build that level of trust and that level of leading by example of like, ooh, I need to fix that. Call me on this. Help me on this. I need to fix that. It opens the door wide open for going, okay, cool. Hey, maybe you can do this too. Like, let's do this together, right? That's a very different journey than I need to fix the patterns for you. Absolutely. And so a couple things on that. So if a parent has arguably done this for 12 years, let's say the kid's 12 years old, right? And all of a sudden they're like, oof, yeah, I, I have some work to do here. I can see where the way I've chosen to parent this now 12-year-old has created this sort of output. When you shift, yep. that child's brain is still very much patterned with this is how mom does things. So I've seen in my work that sometimes even if the parent does try to change, the child still is not willing to work with the parent in their change, even if they're leading with radical personal responsibility. Like, hey, honey, I know that I've done this and this and this in my life. I'm really trying to work on doing this. Yep. The child's brain doesn't feel that they can trust this situation. So what would you tell that parent about how to kind of hold the line, so to speak, and walk yeah. through the fire that's probably coming down the pathway? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great spot. So teenagers, as they're transitioning in here too, a lot of times they'll respond to, unfortunately, they'll respond to a negative just as much or maybe more than they will a positive, right? So you can frame the, well, hey, here's what I'm going to do and I'm going to shift and I want you to come along with me, but you may more powerfully get in front of them by going, look, here's all the ways that I've screwed up. 
and here's all the ways that we mm-hmm. have done this wrong, um, that may actually have a more profound impact where you can go, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong, and here's how we're going to change it. And then that's where I always, you know, I, I default back to those, the, the kind of the parent contract and having those conversations like, hey, what do we need to do to ship this? Like, let's put this in here together, you know, kind of deal. They respond, they might respond to that negative, but you've got to be very, very specific about what it is that you messed up patterns you messed up and very specific about how you want to change it you can't um you can approach it from the negative but you can't make it like this arbitrary thing for them at 12 13 Um, it needs to be very very concrete i don't like this specific habit that i have built up in our household here specifically i want to change it to this now let's make a game around this. You got to be very, very specific. You can't be very esoteric and arbitrary with it for them. Okay. And you suggest somehow gamifying the process. Totally gamify. And, and people, you know, there's a big push, um, especially in academia, which I get, um, you know, guys like Alfie Cohn and, and some of these other um, thinkers that I agree with on, on a lot of things. They'll talk about, you know, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And ultimately what we want is intrinsic. And you're right. Obviously that's ultimately what you want for your young kids is this intrinsic motivation to do the right thing, ask the right questions, be the, you know, whatever. Um, but it goes back to that whole concept of, well, when they're five, we've got to build out, you know, this, this persona so that they can have these relationships in order to get the intrinsic to take root. Sometimes you've got to use extrinsic motivation and gamifying things, especially for young people, and provide that extrinsic motivation. If we gamify it and we're able to achieve this outcome, well then cool, what are we gonna, how are we gonna celebrate? You know, what is our, uh, what is our celebration gonna look like? What is our end prize gonna look like? What is that bag, what is that trophy? What is that? It's okay to dangle some of these things, you know, extrinsically in order to shift the habit. Once a pattern is ingrained, well then it's almost, you know, as you know, it's almost impossible to break that pattern but give yourself something extrinsic to look forward to in order to maintain the pattern when it's not ingrained yet. Yeah. It gives the child an incremental measurement tool to say, okay, it's not like I just have to somehow magically do this forever. It's like, this is what I'm going to do in this set period of time. I would, I would say in general, that tends to decrease anxiety. It increases motivation, right? It's kind of that idea, like you can do anything for 30 seconds, right? It's like, but, but if you just didn't know when someone was going to call the timer, you'd be in your head, like, oh my God, when is this going to be over? So I think that that's a a great strategy. And I've seen that that works not just for kids, by the way, but that works for you too, adults. Yeah. I mean, we, we need to, and I would say part of the, we do a contract, so to speak in break method, where when you graduate, we have an exit interview packet where we call it your blueprint and we kind of all have to sign off on it. And we do gamify something that we call ribbon cutting dates, which are these very incremental, very specific pattern oppositions that you almost do with yourself like a dare and there are due dates or there's a way to measure it as like, I'm going to do this four times this week. Um, I find that, you know, to you adults out there that are like, oh, I got to do this for my kids. Like, you got to do this for you too. Bingo. If your kids, and I literally just sat across on Zoom from, I work with a, a group of parents. I, I think I shared with you, I do a program called Restoring Generation. So I work with the teens and the parents. And, you know, there are a lot of parents that are sitting there and I even give them a survey. One of the survey questions is like, um, 
I am directly responsible for my child's bad behavior, I'm partially responsible for my child's bad behavior, or I'm not responsible for my child's bad behavior. I'll tell you, there were a lot of people that said they're not responsible for their child's bad behavior, which we both know is not the truth. So I've sat across from these people and now we're, you know, we're a few months in and you can see that the, at certain moments, there's like the uncomfortable shifting in the chair. And I had to look at them and be like, Hey guys, you don't bear bad fruit if you're putting in the right input. So if we're looking at kids that are, you know, having some pretty severe mental health issues, suicidal ideation, cutting gender dysphoria and running away among a variety of other things, like we've got something disjointed in the input output. And even if you believe in your heart, you did everything biblically or you did everything right, we're not bearing good fruit here. So we have to actually take a look in the mirror. So I, I don't know how you feel about that, but how do you deal with the parent that's like steadfast in the fact that they have nothing to do with it? Yeah, I, I honestly don't She's your spot on. Um, I have realized, uh, and it took me too, it probably took me too long to, to realize this. Um, but I, I realize it's kind of, you know, you keep talking about biblical principles. Like at some point you are just building the ark, you're inviting people on board. And at some point it's going to start raining and flooding and some people are just going to get, you know, they're going to drown. Right. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I have gone to the, um, side of I will try to proactively talk to any young heroes that I'm working with, any parents that I'm working with, and just go, hey, here's how the roadmap's going to look. Here's where I'm going to challenge you. Here's where all this is going to go. Here's why we're doing all what we're doing. Like, this is where it's going to go. But at the end of the day, all I can do is open all of these doors. I'm going to invite you to go through every single one of them. If you get to the point where you won't go through a door, I am not even going to try to push you, shove you, pull you, yank you. Um, I'm going to invite you. If you won't do it, it is what it is. You know, I, I that's that's basically where I have gotten to, um, because otherwise, all my time and energy goes towards trying to convince somebody to do something that, for whatever reason, um, they're just not going to do it. And so it's you know the energy is better spent other places. You're right about the input and output. Um, you know, and for parents that are listening, um, I, I use the analogy of, of planting, you know, a single flower in a, in a garden. Um, if we do our job as, as parents, we're like the gardener, what we're responsible for is the environment. We're responsible for, okay, where is that flower planted what is the quality of the soil what are the nutrients we're making sure we get into the soil how are we managing the water that's going in how are we managing the sunlight is there any other plant that needs to be planted close by is there any... we've got to take all of those steps if we do all of those steps right the flower is just going to do what it does naturally it's just going to grow and it's going to bloom and it's going to be the best possible version of whatever that flower is. And if there's a fruit involved with it, right, the fruit is going to like, it's going to just do what it needs to do. But if we start introducing, you know, chemicals or pesticides or even too much water is a good thing for plants. But if we go too much water, that yeah. still kills it too. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, it's too much protection and too much like, oh my God, let me do this for you. And it's too much like, those are all those things we're continuously working on ourselves to get the environment right for that young person to just grow and do what they are going to do naturally. That's our job as parents. 
I love that. That's a perfect analogy. And it's something that we use a lot on the show too. We kind of use the analogy of flowers and weeds, flowers being that which you're working on rewiring and trying to build into your life. And then the weeds being all of the behaviors that mm-hmm. will eventually choke it out if you don't shine a light also on the weeds that need to get pulled. That's awesome. So a lot of the parents that I work with, particularly in one of the school environments, they have chosen to homeschool. I would Mm -hmm. say in most situations, the choice to homeschool is primarily based in like a Christian predominated choice point. I've seen the trajectory of a lot of kids that are homeschooled in this sort of fashion has turned out, I would say, like a, a dumpster fire in a lot of cases. They are very isolated, suicidal ideation very early, um, not enough socialization, not enough, basically feeling like they're somehow kept prisoner and not able to interact with the outside world. Obviously, uh-huh. I'm clear on the fact that this is not your way of homeschooling. So sure. I'm curious, for somebody that is choosing, you know, choosing or has previously chosen to homeschool to try to kind of shield their kids from the outside world, what is it that you do differently? And what would you tell that person about how to integrate and socialize in a way that doesn't create this sort of isolated suicidal ideation or self-harm? Yeah, that's a really good, gosh, a really good question. Um, and a lot of these these uh, families that have, you know, some of this um, some of these issues that just continue to compound and, and just kind of go downhill so dang rapidly, which you'll end up finding too, is again, you know, I hate to always bring it back to the parents, but it's their parents that are, like you said, they're doing it specifically because they want to shield, but that which shielding in and of itself, we'd have to define that because there's good things about that, bad things about that. Um, but they're doing so out of fear and they tend to live their life out of fear anyways. And so they are just perpetually living in a household of fear-based reactionary, you know, kind of things, right? Because this whole socialization piece is interesting. Socialization is when you get down to the root of it, it's just literally interacting with other people, right? So the thought that you have to socialize, the only way you can do that is to interact with somebody of your own age. Well, that doesn't actually map out Mm -hmm. Uh, because so how may I ask how old you are? I'm 37, 37. I think, I think I'm 37, okay, something well, around there. I'm 42, almost 43. So should we not be talking right now? Right? Like the real world doesn't work like that. So socialization mm-hmm. just means those interactions. So what I tell parents is it's, it's okay for kids to interact with other kids. It's okay for kids to interact with other adults. The point is that they're getting to interact and that you are intentional about who they are interacting with, right? So being very intentional that they get to interact with the world, but you also get to be intentional about who they interact with. So people say, okay, well, if you home educate, what about socialization? How are they gonna be socialized? And I always say, okay, so you're telling me that the primary voice, meaning the voices that my kids, my kids right now at the time of this recording are 11, nine, and six. So if they were in a conveyor belt school, the primary voices that they would be hearing more than any other voice throughout the week is going to be one teacher, and then it's going to be other 11, 9, or 6-year-olds who may or may not come from good homes, who may or may not be exposed to all kinds of crazy things, who may or may not be wildly upset themselves, who may... 
I'm going to risk that and that's going to be the primary voice for my young person versus me versus my wife. I don't think so. That's still socialization. They're getting social interaction, intentional interaction from us all day, every day. But we're also intentional about who else do they get socialized with, who else do they get to socialize with. So, um, you know, we've got activities that we will go engage in. There's Ninja Warrior class for my kids. There's gymnastics. There's horseback riding lessons. They're interacting with other young people very intentionally in an environment right there. They're helping us run uh, the, the multiple businesses that we have. So, like, when we sell some things on the farm they'll be the ones that a lot of times will greet the customers as the customers come on to the farm. Hey, here's your bill of sale. I'm going to have you, you know, we had a guy come buy some goats and my nine-year-old went up and she's like, here's the bill of sale. I just need you to sign here. Um, I'll take a picture of it. That'll be our receipt. This will be your receipt. And he's like, what the hell is going on? I'm like, that's just, but that's normal. And that's socialization. Mm -hmm. She's having an actual business transaction, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's a much deeper, more nuanced concept, but it's how do you interact with the world, give them experiences to interact with the world and be intentional about what those experiences are. Oh, they've got to go to do it in conveyor belt school because they've got to, that's how they've got to learn that, you know, things don't always work out there, whatever, you know, garbage. So are you telling me then as an adult, because you think, you know, people have to learn that life can be hard. Do you go learn to interact by going to prison and, and hanging out with the inmates? Is that how you do it? No, you're intentional about who you hang out with, who you hear from, who you speak to. We should be doubly so for our young kids, you know? So my kids interacting with other kids and other adults, very intentional about who those are and they're interacting with them all day, every day. That's socialization. Got it. But you do agree that activities and some sort of peer-based outlet is important to some degree. Absolutely. It's fantastic because they that that's absolutely a huge part. A huge part of development is going out and being able to, you know, engage with these other people and have free play and all those things are wildly, um, wildly important. But we, we stop culturally at pretend, like we pretend that that's the end all be all that there's no other interaction that matters. And that if they don't have that, there's no quote unquote socialization. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. They yeah, socialize. That makes a lot of sense. Right? Like my kids are, we went down to, uh, we went down to Mexico this past year uh, and it was a group of entrepreneurs. We all went down there and we were planning this event together and we all brought our kids. And anytime we would go out at night at the resort and go out to you know the parks and go out to the go out to dinner and all that kind of stuff the adults did their thing and then we had a completely separate table for all the kids and the oldest kid i think out of the group was 13. the youngest was like two right and there was like 30 of them i mean because there was a there was a bunch of uh, of these kids they always had their own table at dinner because all of us have parented in that way they weren't running around they weren't running amok they weren't going crazy they all knew how to interact with each other and they had all just met they learned how to help each other do things they were all ordering their own food or helping the two and three-year-olds order theirs right that is all socialization there's a million different ways we just get stuck thinking socialization happens by putting them in a conveyor belt school my point is no there's a billion different ways and the more ways that you integrate intentionally the better 
Right. So it sounds like for you, it comes down to more of like a ratio, right? Like you, you want to be intentional with who they're exposed to in their peer group, but certainly not let that become the, the 99% where they're influenced by a peer group that you have ultimately no, no control, no control over. <laughs> Got right. that. And I would yeah. say, you know, that's something that I think, you know, if I look back at my childhood, I'll kind of often joke around that many, many things went terribly wrong. But a couple of the things that went very right were that my parents, uh, namely my dad, I always had to order my own food. I always had to learn how to speak to adults. My dad was taking me to events with 40, 50, 60 year old lawyers when I was eight, nine years old. And I, I could actually sit there and hold a conversation with them. So I attribute actually even a lot of my business success to my dad socializing me with much older people very early on. It made me not afraid of, of you know, looking at a power dynamic and somehow feeling less than, because I just, even at age eight, I was like, I can talk to a 60-year-old lawyer. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, so I would say that's one of the things that I'm very grateful for. And then, and so the other one, which is kind of on topic of what I want to get to next, like I have a very specific belief system about how confidence gets created because I don't actually believe that human beings are just inherently confident. I think it's a, a structured or a processed system that needs to be in place. So my parents definitely, I think, instilled a, a system that allowed me to generate true sustainable confidence. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what what approach you take where what your belief system is around how confidence actually gets nurtured and created in a child. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So um, the way we have tackled it, and I say we as parents, and I say we is in terms of kind of how I build out, um, you know, these programs, whether it's the school or working with parents too, is, you know, starting found foundationally, um, we we want to praise, we praise inspirationally, we correct calmly, um, but we want to make sure we also are uh, excited during uh, the times they're failing forward. And so here's, you know, kind of my big example, um, for that. So I always, so like my son, you know, that we always talk about in our house that responsibility comes before freedom. So if he, uh, is partaking in some of his freedoms and doing whatever, but he didn't take care of some of his purported responsibilities, I'm going to consistently, uh, call him on that, but I'm going to do it very, very calmly. And in doing so, he remembers, crap, okay, I got to go take care of my responsibilities first. When he hits the mark on something and, you know, went out to the garden the other day and he starts to go forward through the gate and he goes, whoops, wait a second. And he holds the gate open for my wife and for his two older sisters to go through and he goes, ladies first. I'm like, man, that's awesome. That's what a good man does. You are a good man. Like I want to praise inspirationally and, and give him feedback on those things that this is the, you know, what we believe is the right thing to do. And so I want to really pump that up. But I also want to want to uh, acknowledge specifically when they fail forward and not acknowledge the outcome. I want to acknowledge the effort that's there. And I always take parents back to when their kids are learning how to walk, right? And so the kids gets up and, and the kid kind of grabs onto the couch and they start to kind of wobble, you know, and they're moving forward. And you're like, oh my gosh. And then they, what happens? They fall down on their butt, right? And what do parents do at that point? They go, yay. yay. That's awesome, yeah. right? They cheer them on. They go, you did, like, that was great. Because they know if they keep cheering on that, what did your kid do? Your kid just failed at walking. That's, it's not a bad thing. That's part of the process. They fail at walking a bunch before they ever walk. And you cheer it on because you know that if you keep cheering that on, they'll keep trying 
and then they will be confident enough. Eventually they will get it right. And they'll be confident enough to start going faster and running and, and all of that. Well, that's life in general. So I always want to put them in situations and have them in experiences where they get the chance to fail in a very small manner, right? They're, but then I can cheer on that resilience and I can go, Ooh, that's awesome. That's one rep under your belt. Now we're going to, you know, and, and just building up that resilience to where they're not afraid to fail forward. So whether that's in athletics, athletics, that's my favorite part about it is they get the opportunity to fail early and often, and I can praise effort versus outcome. I can watch my son get manhandled in jujitsu and praise the fact that he pushed forward and kept going. And that was great, even though he lost. Because then if he's got that resilience built up, well, ultimately then he wins and then confidence itself starts to build. He's not afraid to be resilient and push through failure. And then he starts to get those little victories that we can point out and go back to that cookie jar mentally and go, remember when you, when you did that and that worked out well, right? And so now you've got both pieces in place. You've got the resilience part where failure is okay because failure is just one step further towards getting there. And then we can go back and stack those wins and revisit the memory of those wins to have, you know, some of that, some of that confidence. So it's, it's obviously nuanced and multifaceted, but that's, that's kind of how we approach that whole thing. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for that description. Yeah. So it brought up a couple of things, which is where I was going with the next line of questioning. So you brought up resilience in this idea of, of being able to be in a process that is not just allowing you to fail, but part and parcel like in like built to make you to fail right right it's like kind of part of the thing so where i'm going with this is clearly we're at a time in 2022 where we've got schools now trying to do away with grades make nobody fail at anything there's no sort of measurement right everything is just supposed to be blanket praised no matter what Mm -hmm. and then at the same time obviously you know working in the environments that i do would say teen resilience is at an all-time low for sure. COVID had some to do with it, but I think in general, the way that we've been trending culturally is very much responsible for a complete dip, if not disappearance of resilience. So kind of thinking of this idea that I believe mental health presentations that are, that would be looked at negatively in teens are, you know, astronomically high. They shouldn't be this high. Uh, to me, if I look at what we're dealing with, any functioning cognitive adult can look at it and say, obviously we're, we're doing something wrong with input here. Like we're just, this is a, again, back to like the flaming dumpster fire. So I guess I'm curious kind of factoring in this kind of like dipping resilience Mm -hmm. systems now being like, Oh, everyone's a winner. We're not going to measure anything. You know, those two clearly are tied to it. What other things do you think are tied to the dumpster fire that is teen mental health in the United States? Man, we've got a uh, we've got a bunch in this this and uh, you know I think your listeners are probably different than most because I, I get a lot of backlash on this, but um, yeah, we've we've got quite a few things that are that are that are happening now. The the grade side, I just want to you know be very clear on that. I I do believe in standards being held. I think grades are a crappy way to do it. Um, so I'm not a fan of grades in schooling, and because I think it's just as dangerous to really try to get good at something that doesn't matter. Um, It's just as dangerous as being bad at something, you know, that does perpetually, right? And so um, I think there's ways that you build in resilience and our our schools will build in um, real world exhibitions, whereas, you know, you're actually 
working towards doing a public presentation where you might fail because you didn't prep, but you fail in a safe way, but it's very a public failure too, right? So there are some higher stakes that do make you want to push yourself. And um, you do have the opportunity to fail. And at least if you fail in a public presentation, you know, you're not, you're, you're learning a lesson and not, you know, a marriage isn't, isn't suffering or, um, you know, you're not losing the mortgage on your house, right? You're learning those, those failures early on and going, crap, okay, I got to prep a little better next time. I've got well, to and I think what you're talking about here is that, you know, the way I'm talking about it with the school system, it, it removes this idea that someone's observing, yep. right? Which yep. I think all that needs to be in place is that, yeah, someone's observing, someone's holding you accountable. We might not associate that with an A, B, a C, D, E, or F, but... I think where it's gone is kind of this like very hands-off, no one's observing, no one wants to point out anything that may or may not need correction. So would you uh, agree that it's kind of more like the, the key piece there is the observation? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's a huge, that's a huge piece. Um, so, but then going back to kind of what you were talking about, you know, I think there's a few different things that we're seeing. One, we've made it unattractive. Uh, we're talking about mental health here for, for our teens. We've made it unattractive to be an adult. Um, and I think that I, I think that right there doesn't get as much press as it should. We've made it unattractive because most adults that we know are afraid and are very obviously living in fear. Um, most adults that we know complain more than they create. Um, they consume more than they create. Uh, and it, they're just generally not at peace as it is, right? And they complain about the job, complain about their relationships, complain about the culture, complain about the world, complain about, complain, complain, complain versus I'm on a mission, I'm creating, I'm at peace, um, I'm resilient, I'm, right? So we've made it unattractive to be an adult as it is. So I think that is, is one of the nuanced pieces. Um, we have completely downgraded the need for physical activity for our young people. We've downgraded the need for physical activity for our whole society in general. Um, but for young people, it is wildly necessary for them to be physically active, for them to get outside and get some sun and just freaking run around. They don't have to play a sport, but they just need to be physically moving. You know, there's a great documentary, um, and I wish I could, uh, the motivation factor is what it's called. And I believe it's on Amazon right now. And it's about um, actually this school back where I'm from in California in the Sacramento area. And uh, in the sixties, um, JFK even was like highly touting going, this is the program, this is the PE program at this school, should be the PE program for every school across the country. And you go and you watch the video of all of these young men and they're competing against one another as their standards and their abilities raise, they get to change the color of their shorts to indicate they've raised in rank. Um, they're leading each other through all of these uh, physical obstacles that if we're honest, I would say 1% of men could probably do now. Um, and all of these young men are able to do it. And when you go back and you talk to everything, they're going back and they're talking to these men now who are grown men who are older than, you know, than I am now. And all of them talk about the gift that it was to have this because of the mental uh, strength and peace and happiness it gave them, not just the physical part, right? It's how that translated to the mentality for them. Um, so the physical part of that is huge. 
um, we're distracting our young people more than ever before. Not just the adults that are whining over here, but you've got all your cultural distractions. Um, and to some extent, you've always had cultural distractions from, from media and celebrities and all that stuff, but um, it's kind of heightened, I think, a, a lot now. And But we're also adding in um, some of the social media stuff. And again, social media can be used for amazing things, but we're allowing them to get distracted by it. Um, and video games, uh, this is a place I always get people angry at me, but video games are one. Oh, of the go, go for it. They've heard me. They've heard me go hard on this. Go for it. Destructive things. Video games are phenomenally done. They're beautiful. They're masterpieces of art. The people that make them are brilliant human beings. Those are amazing creations. I give them that a hundred percent because of that. It is a very easy thing for our young people to get addicted to, specifically our young men who are wired to want to go conquer something. To They want to go accomplish. They want to go rescue that princess and slay that dragon. And they want to go, they're wired for adventure, right? They want to get out there and do something. What happens is they do this in that alternative reality in this video game and it checks off that mental box for them so then the real world seems less appealing and that's they don't have that innate desire to go now create and conquer and go do something they've already gotten that checked off and i think that is a humongous driver um, of our teen issues and i know we got a lot of people oh well that's how my kid socializes and that's how that's how they connect with their friends as if it's the only way it can be done as if that justifies this other part of their life just being shut off and i just i fully disagree with it so i'd say video games out of the house and then the last part that also um that comes to mind that i know also pisses people off when i say it is we medicate our kids early and often now um and i think that is uh, one of the most insidious things that we are doing um, for their mental health. I don't think we can say we are caring about their mental health when we want to medicate it away. I couldn't agree more, and it's something that we talk about a lot on the show. In fact, in a lot of the work that I do, I really, I think, successfully help parents see that often what would get diagnosed by the Western medical system as something worthy of medication is quite literally just based in input-output in the way that you parented that young child. I firmly believe that the most important parenting years that end up really determining how that child is going to fare for the rest of their lives are about one and a half to three and a half. Mm -hmm. So a lot of parents are not operating at their best in those years, right? Like, especially if you're a new parent, you're probably triggered pretty often and you're probably exhausted. So... I really encourage parents that are listening here, you know, obviously you seek your doctor's advice and blah, 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 and all those things, but also take a moment to get some other opinions because your kids might be getting labeled with something because now the system needs to be fed with all of those kids that have those labels. So you're, you're operating in a system that is incentivized to keep handing out medication, keep had, handing out labels. And ultimately that's not what's in the best interest of your child. And you need to be looking in the mirror and taking a look at your input output in your family. Bingo. Yeah. The whole, uh, you know, and I get the, the, do- um, you know, people hear this, well, you're not a doctor. No, you're right. I'm not. Um, but let's take a look at it logically, right? And people, mm-hmm. oh, well, doctors went to, they went to school forever this amount of time. And so they're the experts. So I trust them. Okay, cool. Our, uh, what I'll usually ask a parent is, is I'll try to pick something that I know is clearly a no. So I would, you know, uh, 
a lot of Americans, maybe blonde hair, blue eyes, they'll say, cool, are you, are you Muslim? And, well, no, I'm not Muslim. Well, why not? Because there are people who went to school for a long time to teach you the religion of Islam, mm-hmm. right? You're not Muslim because you reject the overarching premise. So it doesn't matter if somebody is an expert in that particular field, you reject the overarching premise in the first place. So you're not going to listen to that person and consider them an expert for something in your life. Well, you've got to make sure that if you're going to trust a doctor because of their training, you've got to make sure that system that has trained them and how that system operates and how that system survives and functions and makes money. You've got to agree with that premise overall because that's the one that's training that quote unquote expert. Because if you go back here and you disagree with the overarching premise of what they're doing in the first place, then I don't care how much schooling somebody has. All right, and we got to just, that's again, goes back to that intentionality of thinking through um, versus just reacting and going, ah, well, everybody's doing this. Everybody's doing it. And we're sitting here talking about let's in a nice word say the risks of of schooling right medical school is schooling and it is a system of indoctrination that i had i brought in a you know an amazing doctor from new york city to give a talk at our break live event last april and she gave a whole talk really breaking down the nitty-gritty of her entire schooling all the way through residency and anyone that understands cult-like behavior and how you have to break somebody down, get them exhausted, they have to keep repeating things, you see very quickly that there is some of that behavior prevalent in medical schooling. And I would argue in academia in general, and it's one of the things that I feel like I continue to harp on. I feel like we've kind of built this society where everyone's like, well, what are your credentials? What are your credentials? We're in a place where, listen, if we want to move forward, we're going to start needing people to step forward that aren't just really good at regurgitating information because you know this. You become primed to misinformation that's right in front of you. That's part of the schooling process is you're primed to actually miss maybe 70% of what we actually have available to us. So I really think to to change society, we have to undo that. We have to opt out of the system, which means that we're gonna have to stand against people that are like, you don't get to say this. You don't have three letters behind your name. Yes, I do. Totally, yeah, totally. You're 100% right. You get trained to disregard the evidence that is in front of your own eyes. And George Orwell said something like that in in 1984, Um, but it applies to so, so much. Um, and again, going back to kind of Naval Ravikant's theory of, of uh, specific knowledge and, and how that's built, you know, I've been lucky enough to have a number of instances. I remember one, I was in my early 20s and was in a place called Chico, uh, California, which is where I had gone to college. And at that time, there's a guy named Rob Wolf, if anybody of your listeners are familiar. Yep, I'm familiar. Yeah. So Rob is, is uh, phenomenal when it comes to, uh, you know, health and nutrition and um, Rob was in Chico at that time, and I was beginning the relationship with him. And, and um, I went to a seminar of his, and he was given all this health information. It was amazing, phenomenal seminars, some mind-blowing stuff. But what really kind of shook me up um, or, or really just kind of pointed something out to me was there was a number of people there that were like, hey, we're doctors. We're MDs. We know none of this stuff. We are 
we are not given this kind of information, this is what our medical training looks like. It is this bedside manner. It is how do you medicate this? It is we are getting a lot of our training on how to diagnose or treat something comes from pharmaceutical representatives, right? And so I'm hearing them say this. I then, as I'm consulting with companies around the world, I legitimately, the one time I took an accidental client, and that's a whole other story of itself, was with a large pharmaceutical company that was an accidental thing, but I did end up getting to sit in some of their meetings where the entire thing is about how to drive the sales of a certain thing that's causing all these issues. So how do we incentivize our doctors? How do we train the doctors to manipulate the patients into accepting this particular pharmaceutical uh, intervention? It was not about health. It was not about, it was about how do we manipulate and train our doctors to do the same. Horrifying. It's horrifying. And I mean, you're seeing it across all sectors and I believe it was Matt Walsh did an expose yesterday. Actually, I don't know if you got to see it right where this is even happening in hospitals that are starting to offer gender reassignment surgeries, right? It's like, how do we, how do we manufacture a greater need for this service because it produces a lot of profit. I really wish that people would wake up and stop so blindly trusting the Western medical establishment, which, you know, perhaps segues us into what inevitably will certainly be an episode two for you and I. I think people need to spend more time researching the origin of systems because people usually we get so far down in the system that you know we've kind of grown up surrounded by it and we can't really tell where it starts and ends and now we know with even something like a google search you bump into the system when you even start to try to look for something right so it's it's now protecting itself if we go and look at the origin of the western education system we start to see some horrifying things if you go and look at the origin of let's say western obstetrics and gynecology guess what you find you actually find that it stems from slavery practices that were intentionally trying to torture and induce fear so i think i would really encourage everybody here you know we're kind of talking about where a lot of these systems kind of touch each other Roll up your sleeves, go try to do some research. And I'm gonna tell you right now, you're not gonna find that information on Google page one. That's you're gonna right. have to work harder than that. That's right, yep, you're gonna to have to dig in. Yeah. You're gonna right. have to really dig. And do you see, I mean, I, I think you tend to see things similar to the way I see them. Have you kind of rolled through the tape and tried to find or isolate where all these systems kind of converge in their origin? And if so, what's your hypothesis, sir? Yeah, um, it's a, yeah, I, I, I have, um, and when I'm talking systems, you know, I'm talking systems of medicine, we're talking systems of schooling, um, I talk about the systems of religion itself, and I'm not saying this is, I'm not coming at it from, a, um, people get very upset and go, oh, you know, you're, are you anti-theist, are you anti, not, not at all, I actually, um, I very much believe that that God is is real. Um, I just feel like you're not going to find him in a church usually because of the systems that are at play there. Um, and so, yeah, where do all of those uh, converge? I don't know. Um, you know, there's it's it's it it's a control thing. I don't know that I have a specific. Um, name for it or like a specific one 
uh, origin. Like I don't necessarily go back to, okay, well, you got, you know, the Illuminati controlling all, like I don't necessarily go back into that. I, again, focusing on education, I look and go, okay, well, education was, you know, in terms of the way we see it, and I always tell people go back to John Taylor Gatto because he's much more eloquent about it than I am. But, you know, you look at the people who brought it, this Prussian system that was brought over and Rockefeller kind of taken like uh, a big interest in it and pouring a ton I think, of money. I think you just went there. Yeah. You I would know, say a lot, of, a lot of this goes back to Rockefeller. It's just right? like trying to get the women to actually be now having to be in the workforce and pay taxes. You've got to figure out where to put their kids. That's exactly right. You know, so then you end up breaking up the you end up breaking up the household there. You create these slaves. He said he doesn't want an educated population. He wanted an obedient population. Um, so, you know, that's all that's all laid out there. So you got this Prussian system that is literally made for blind obedience. That's what they wanted for this system. So it's the system that we have now, as you said, just accepted as this is the way it is. And so if we really stop to think about it, like Oh, wait, did, was this because a bunch of experts figured out this is how child development works? No, it's quite the opposite. They actually figured out this is how you break a human being. Yeah, absolutely. Being, right? So then, okay, well, what is the parallel here? Well, if you go into any kind of, you know, you go into the religious institution and you start taking a look at even just the Bible as we have it, and you start looking systemically at how that has been shifted and how that has been changed and how translations have been skewed and you go back to the oldest extant manuscripts that we have and you take a look at now how is that translated into our current scriptures and you go wait a second this is vastly different and you start to go okay well who changed this you had all this you had this masoretic text and then who were the ones that went in to make a change right so you can start to see the origins of all of these systems and so then you start to look and go okay well did all these origins do those connect some way you know and i don't know that i have i i know i don't have the answers but i know all of those are problematic amen to that and that's actually exactly what you just touched on is what we're working on in my bible study this series so we're in series three we're we're about 27 episodes deep now hours and hours and and this particular season we're really digging into who's controlling the narrative of of god's word so I will happily share that with you. It's going to be a wild time. We just kicked it off yesterday. The first episode was called Setting the Stage for the Supernatural. The next one, we're, we're going to go real deep in history. So I, I will certainly share it with you. So cool. So cool. So I have really enjoyed having you on the podcast. I have one. I want to end with one question that I personally really wanted to ask about marriage, and then I want to make sure we've got time for these rapid-fire questions. So... I love this post and I'm going to actually read it. I've got it in front of me, but everyone head over to Matt's Instagram. It says, dads, I don't care how rich you are, how many followers you have on social media, how many people know your name, how much of a physical specimen you are, or how mentally tough you are. If your wife and kids aren't thriving, then you have a ton of work to do. Hashtag real wealth. How do you measure success in your marriage and parenting and what things would you look to, to hold yourself accountable for if you're actually walking this out correctly? That's a great, that's a great question. Thank you for, for bringing that up too. And I'll tell you the genesis of that too, is, you know, I have the um, distinct honor of having um, a lot of very high performing uh, men in my life that I, that I get to call friends and, and family. Um, and you can measure very clearly a lot of things about what they have done. 
I can tell you, you know, I have three billionaires with a B in my Rolodex. Um, I have multiple multi-millionaires. I can give you, you know, we can get down to the exact amount of money they have. I can get down to the exact amount of followers they have on any social platform and it's into the millions. I can tell you, you know, I have good friends. I can tell you the exact number of movies they've been in and the exact, like, I've got all of those kind of things. And then I know so many of them too. And I look at the relationship and they'll come to me and go, oh, struggling with my kid right now. Oh, struggling with wife number three right now. And right, and we have those kinds of conversations. And what's interesting is we can measure all of those things over there. But what you said was, how do you measure how do you that? Do it? How do you measure that? How do you measure the fact that my wife and I have a better working relationship um, and marriage and, and closer relationship than any other husband and wife I know? How do I measure the fact that our kids are, by all intents and purposes, I, happier than any other young kids that I know. Um, and I, I don't know how to quantify that measurement because it's so freaking important and I don't know a scale that I can put that on. What I can tell you is this, I think of myself as happier than most guys I know because I am truly at peace. Um, I don't have anything I am anxious about. I don't have anything I am worried about. Um, I pay attention to the future and I think there's some things, you know, even if I think there's things coming our way, I'm looking at, okay, well, how am I going to react? I'm very intentional about all of my life without any hint of anxiety, without any hint of, um, you know, I can, ex I experience sadness, but I don't wallow in it and I don't suffer in it. I don't, I really am at peace. And when I look at my wife and have conversations with her, you get that same zen-like sort of peace there too and i get the same thing with my kids and i'll hear them recognize things with the world and want to offer solutions and then see them uh, but not hold on to that and suffer with that right it's those kind of things that i see where i go man we've you know again there's no perfection there's no perfection um, but man the amount of peace we have why I think we're the people I don't know how else to measure it. So I think for someone listening, you know, maybe they might be thinking of the negatives, right? So for example, you know, when they hear you say those remarks about your marriage, they might be thinking like, well, did they ever fight? How many fights are too many fights, right? So I think sure. maybe if you can kind of share a little bit about, you know, despite feeling like potentially you guys have the best marriage in the whole world, which, you know, yeah. maybe you do, I hope you do. Um, yeah. Does that mean that it's free of, of disagreement? Does that mean that it's free of, of any raising of the voice? Maybe if you can kind of share a little bit of that so that people get what, really, at least from your perspective is like a realistic thing yep. to, to either strive for, or at least hold as a vision of possibility. Yeah, totally. And I think, I think if we counted the number of fights, then we would, then there's no way we would achieve that piece either, right? Mm -hmm. like totally. Weird. Yeah, you don't want to keep that's score. Thing you don't want to quantify because if you're quantifying it, then you're not really in the midst of a relationship. You're in a business transaction. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that's the same thing, right? So, you know, I think we were very, um, we did, we, we fought less as a probably a, 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 an engaged couple um, going into marriage than most do, partially because we had a friendship that developed 
you know, before that. And I know that's a, a blessing for us. We worked together and knew each other for um, a good year and a half before we ever started dating. And we we developed a true friendship um, where we genuinely enjoyed each other's company and personalities and all that before we ever started dating. So I think that was a huge plus for us. Um, but are there disagreements? You bet there's been disagreements. We have just been very careful to, when a disagreement happens, to try to analyze what it is in that disagreement. Is this a misunderstanding on my side? Is it a misunderstanding on your side? Is it a complete difference of opinion? Is it a, like, what is the root issue here? And how do we proactively fix that from happening again? Mm. And I think it's just that. And it's the consistency to do that. Because what do most relationships do? Ugh, it really bugs me when he does that. I'm not going to say it for a while. I'm just going to let it fester. And then I'm going to make a, an off-the-cuff statement. And then he's going to make a smart-ass statement. And then you make, right? And you don't really... Yeah, you just have to address it in the moment right away when it's authentic. Yeah. You've got to, when it's off, and just address it calmly if you can. And try to be proactive about figuring it out. If you'll do that early on, then, you know, do we have disagreements? Sure. Can I remember the last one that my wife and I had? No, it was probably a few months ago. Um, you know, now it's just very inconsistent. And even then, uh, she does a better job than I do, honestly, just going, hey, okay, we need to sit, we like, let's figure it out. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're right. We got to do that. And it's that, that's the commitment to the relationship where it's like, let's figure it out. Let's figure it out now. Um, and we let our kids see us do that. If it's not something that they can't, see. we let our kids Absolutely. see us, do that, you know, I think so that's, that's really important. And I think a lot of parents try to hide or remove themselves for something like that when, and we've kind of touched on this in a few different portions of the podcast, kids learn through observation and oh. many of the most negative patterns that can present as adults come from gaps in understanding where they're not really understanding how to do something. It's not been modeled. It's not been something that they've been able to observe and understand. So I do love the way that you're kind of incentivizing people like, Hey, as long as it's not like completely age inappropriate and right. like fraught with anger, like uh, walk this out in front of your kids. It shows them a good example of conflict resolution. 100%. I really feel like where you're going with this, which I love, and it's, I think a great framework for us to all strive for is in marriage the number one goal needs to be how can we get on the same page and collaborate right like instead of like i'm over here and you're over there you know i'm gonna be mad until i'm blue in the face if you don't agree with me like how can we what is the how can we each try to see from each other's perspective and get on some sort of common ground so that we can move forward collaboratively bingo i mean we call it that they're our better half right you say that mm -hmm. yeah really believe that believe that that is half of you and you want what's best for you too so you need to pour into that half you need to make sure that half is doing okay you need to pay attention to that half right you need to i mean you should you know i pay attention enough to my what she drives her nuts but like we could be in a room and you know maybe we're both reading or something like that nobody said anything for 45 minutes or an hour and she'll go oh you know what and I go, yeah, and I'll answer whatever it is in her brain just because I pay attention to her so hard that I know, okay, well, based on what time of day it is, what day it is, what the kids are doing, what you're reading, whatever, your brain probably went here. So you're probably thinking about this, right? It's like we should be paying attention to the other half of us, you know, like that. And then leading by example for our kids. And even when there's not a disagreement, um, last week I was working on a piece of equipment that had broken in the garage. 
Um, and the kids came in and I was like, this is driving me nuts. And they're like, what's going on? And I'm like, man, I just, I can't get this piece to go in here where I want it. Um, but that's okay, you know, whatever. And, and I got it fixed and I figured it out. Later on that night, it was bugging the crap out of me that I said, I can't. Mm. And it was bugging me because I tell them, no, we don't say we can't. Identify what you're struggling with and then let's figure out what a solution is. But we don't say can't. Like that's just not, that's a four letter word in our house. And I went, crap, man, that was the worst example. I actually went into their rooms. They had gone to bed. I went into their rooms because it was early enough. I knew they hadn't fallen asleep yet. And I just said, hey, man, I got I got to tell you, I need to apologize earlier. I, right in front of you guys, I said, I can't. That wasn't the case. I was struggling then, but I figured it out, right? But it's like, we will be that consistent on things. And I think that makes a huge difference. And we're not neurotic about it. It just, I want to be that consistent, you know? Um, I think that's a beautiful thing to strive for. I think a lot of parents have this underlying belief that kids don't remember everything. And I remind people on the show that I work with 30 through, you know, 60 year olds all the time who remember everything. So when you are very quick to own up to something, take responsibility and kind of re-reconcile or reroute everybody and what we are all agreeing on and moving forward, it creates a lot of trust and it will make your child actually you know, want to do right by you and vice versa. If you just keep trying to sweep things under the rug, just watch how quickly a rift forms between you and your child. That's exactly right. You get the key word there. It's that trust that you develop and that, that, um, that sets a foundation for not just your relationship, but just for how they view the world and how they interact with the world too. Cause they'll give, you know, they'll be trustworthy and they'll expect trustworthiness. And then that's a super, super good thing. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So I want to hit these rapid fire questions. Sure. I want to make sure that you just freestyle it. Don't overthink it. You don't strike me as a, a dude that overthinks anyway. So let's just roll through it. All if right, 2022 so. had a senior yearbook nickname, what would it be? Had a senior yearbook nickname. Holy crap. Um, if 2022. Uh, fucking... <laughs> <laughs> Most likely to... Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to get a word or a nickname that signifies um, t- that signifies temper. I'll tell you where my mind went. My mind went 2020 and 2021 were shit shows. Mm-hmm. 2022, even with the inflation, seems like everything's okay, but I think we're still in for a shit show in 23 and 24. So I don't want to say like the comeback kid. Um, I want to say like the temporary comeback kid, uh, something like that. Yeah, like almost like we're in like a false, we're, we're in like a false hope. hope. We're in like a, a little, like a purgatory, if you will. We're in a holding yeah. space. All right, I dig, I dig that. That makes sense? Okay. What's the biggest mistake you've made in your life and how did it impact who you've become? Um, biggest mistake I have made. So I, I take it in a few different ways. I think business-wise, I have partnered um, with people that it, it has taught me to be just very, very, um, uh, it has taught me what to look for in a, in a, in a person that I'm going to partner with in a business sense. Um, and it's most people I don't want to partner with. I don't think most people are, I don't think it's good to go into business with, with most people. Um, I really, I really don't. Um, I think on a personal standpoint, um, the biggest mistake was really kind of this conglomerate of, of trying to be, um, 
the person that I thought, you know, other people wanted me to be earlier on is that whole cliche, but I treated girls the wrong way. And I was far too much of a, a chest beating douchebag um, for far too long and had Thank to very honesty and had to get humbled in both of those regards. Um, but I'm very, very thankful that I did because I think that was the only thing that allowed me to have the opportunity to have the, the marriage and the relationship that I do now um, is I had to, I had to, you know, I still feel I have gone and apologized to girls and to other guys from 30 years ago. Like, Hey, I shouldn't have done this. They're like, dude, we were 12. And I'm like, I don't care. I just, I yeah, gotta take ownership. It's gotta take ownership. I still have to fix that. So I'm thankful for it, but I still, you know, feel bad sometimes. Thank you for sharing that example with our audience. I definitely encourage people to go back and do that. If Matt Bojo educator, speaker, podcast, didn't end up the way you did, what would your alternate career have been? Hmm. Um, I would have been, the path that I was going down is I would have been in some sort of law enforcement, but not necessarily one of the good guys. Mm. Um, that's the path I was going down. Um, you know, I, I grew up around those guys, um, the kind of the gang within the law enforcement affiliates sort of deal. Those were my examples. Those were kind of my role models. And I got along with them very well. Uh, and I, my senior year of college, I actually was going through the entire background process for the Secret Service um, and would have been out at, uh, at the White House and pursuing that if I hadn't, somebody hadn't intervened on that. Right. Yeah. Love that one. So I'm a big poker betting person. I like to, to think contextually about like if I had to put my chips on something, it would be this or that. If yeah. you had to go all in and just bet a large sum of money on what portion of, of daily or societal life would make the most meaningful ripple effect in, in our world, what would it be? I don't understand the question. So all in on So what? if you had to bet on one one change, one input change to our either daily or just societal way of living life, just one change. And that one change would create a, the biggest ripple possible. What would be the one thing you would bet on? I mean, because obviously we can all sit here and acknowledge that there are a variety of pieces of our system that are incredibly broken and possibly interconnected. But yeah. if you had to sit here today and say, I would put all my chips on this one this thing. particular thing. Gosh, that's a really, really good question. Um, I would, because I go back to the systems, right? I'm sitting here going, mm -hmm. is it? school is it is it physical health is it the religious system is it um I, i'm gonna go back to i'm gonna go to actually which sounds weird i'm gonna go to the physical health would make the quickest mm -hmm. would make the quickest change for most people because i think mental health would come out of that i think more people would take pride in who they were and so what they did i think there'd be a big ripple effect if physical health got fixed First, I think we've always, historically speaking, screwed it up on God's side. I think that's pretty evident. Um, so I'm going to go phys physical health. Physical health. Okay, I dig that. If you were to create an ideal president, what three people would you combine, alive or dead? Um, I'm going to I'm going to throw I'm going to throw a curveball back at it. Um, I don't think we should have a president. I don't vote. Um, I don't. I don't ask for a leader or a master. Um, I truly believe in sovereignty. Um, so I want no president. Okay. You can raise your kids with just one book. That book is. Ooh, ooh. 
Um, gosh, this is good. Um, that book is An Introduction to God by Craig Wynn. All right. I've never heard of that one. I will make sure to put it in the show notes. The most important ingredient in raising an epic child is? Confidence in yourself. I dig it. Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. This will no doubt become one of my most popular episodes. I know that you had given a special offer. I will make sure to put it in the show notes. Awesome. Is there a certain website that you want to direct people to or something that kind of knowing what you now know about our audience, where would you guide people to connect with you or how to take a first step? So cool. Um, I appreciate it. I'll tell you what, depending on, I always tell people just email me directly and I'm glad to point you in places. You can email me at matt at apogeestrong.com. So A-P-O-G-E-E strong.com. Um, you know, and, or reach out to me on Instagram. I try to get back to everybody who reaches out. Those are the best places to go because we have apogeestrong.com for the young men. We have educating modern day heroes. We have raising dragon slayers. We're launching the dads program. We have so many. So I just tell people, email me directly, matt at apogeestrong.com. Um, and I'll help you. And even if pointing you in the right direction means pointing you away from me, um, I just want to point you in whatever I can do to help. Thank you so much. I really appreciate having you on the show. Definitely want to have you back on again. Thanks for checking out this week's episode of The Modern Good. For more information on Break Method, head over to breakmethod.com. And to check out my workshop and teaching schedule, busygold.com. I'll see you next week.